Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Getting no-till practices off the ground in the 1970s in Canada required a certain amount of vision and tenacity. With equipment that wasn't adequate for dealing with the rocky soils and concern about compaction resulting from multiple passes with high-horsepower machinery, no-till could have fizzled out before it even got started. But seeing the damage wind and water erosion were doing to his delicate soils, Jim Halford of Saskatchewan took it upon himself to make no-till work in his prairie environment, and his early experiments eventually led him to develop the Conserva-Pack air seeder. Now, nearly five decades later, zero-till is widely adopted in many areas north of the U.S. border. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lester talks with Halford about the zero-till movement in Canada. Join us as they discuss the development of the Conserva Pack, how no-till has made it possible for growers to farm more acres, experiments with wide-row wheat and canola, overcoming harvest time bottlenecks, and much more. Jim, tell me a little bit about uh, where you're located in Saskatchewan, north, south, or whereabouts? Uh, We're in the southern area. I'd say we're 100 uh, miles north of the U.S. border, just east of Regina, Saskatchewan, right on the Trans-Canada Highway. Okay. This been a family farm for a long time, or what? Yes, my grandfather homesteaded in 1890, and... uh, yeah, I had a dad there, and then I, myself, and now I got a son, basically running it. And I still get involved in kind of doing what I like to do out there. There you go. So in most of the U.S., we call it no-till, although in some of the western areas they call it zero-till. Do you see any difference between no-till and zero-till in your area, or is it all just called zero-till? I think primarily it's called zero-tillage. It's been called conservation tillage, too, which then starts to get into uh, some wonderment as to whether you're just talking about tillage or whether you're talking about actually growing a crop. Right, right, right. So uh, how many acres are you farming today in the operation? We have just a little over 3,000 acres. We have, of course, uh, hard red spring wheat and then canola are kind of the two main crops. Mm -hmm. We also grow barley for malting purposes, hopefully to get malting each year. And we also grow some pulse crops. This year we have some field peas and some soybeans. Soybeans have just come in to our area in the last sort of eight or ten years, and they've sort of had mixed results so far, but uh, we're trying to still give it a try. Right. Well, that's happening in the States, too. We're seeing North Dakota get into soybeans in a big way, which they didn't do a decade or so ago. So what what would be a normal rotation for you on your ground? Well, we uh if we if we have a wheat crop one year, it usually has followed um after a pulse crop such as peas because we want to get all the nitrogen okay. we could get from the peas. And then after the wheat we would go into canola. Okay. And of course we have to use a high levels of fertility for that particularly nitrogen and phosphorus and sulfur. And, uh, you know, then we'd follow up that with uh, barley. The barley for malting, we don't want a high protein. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, we hopefully the uh, canola has reduced the quantity in the soil. We're seeing a uh, comeback in northern Ohio of barley because of the uh, local distilleries looking for barley. So that got out of the double cropping uh, rotation for a long time. It was only wheat, but some of these people are going back to barley now. So I take it this is uh, spring-seeded wheat for you? Yes, uh, we have grown winter wheat in the past, usually following up after canola mm-hmm. in that case, but uh, we dropped it the last two or three years. We weren't having that good a success compared to spring wheat. One of the problems people had encountered up here over a period of years, particularly in Manitoba, and then it spread west into Saskatchewan and it's almost Alberta, is fusarium in the, in the wheat, mm-hmm. in the spring wheat crop, and so... Sure. That's why there was some interest in the winter wheats. So you told me earlier that you've been... No, no tilling for 42 years on the farm? Yes, that's correct. We started in 1979 with the first crop and uh, was using a disc-type machine at that time and having to separately apply fertilizer because we didn't have the capability at that time. And pretty soon after about four years, I realized that the disc-type machine on our stony or type of soil was not going to survive the test of time because just the wear was too great and mm-hmm. and the inability to put fertilizer on it at seeding time where we wanted to put it. It's what led to the machine we developed eventually. What uh, led you to try no-till in the first place? Well, I knew we had to do something different because where we farm, we're in a valley and uh, it's got, uh, you know, coolies and so on on each side of it. And uh, we could be subject to either water erosion from, you know, a heavy rain on that, especially if the fields were bare. Or we've also got fence lines that in the 1930s in this country mm-hmm. were completely buried by soil drifting. So uh, we have some challenges that uh, we knew we had to find a different way to farm and didn't realize we'd also been losing so much in organic matter over the years that had reduced the quality of the soil. So no-till has also probably led you away from having the summer fallow, right? That's correct. We haven't had any for probably 15 years or more. And if we had it then, it would only be probably even a partial summer fallow just to do something. But we've we've realized we don't need the tillage operation with our system. And we can go right into sod with what we have to um, start another crop, an annual crop. So therefore, we don't even need tillage to get rid of, a, say, a grass stand, grass right. or alfalfa stand. Right. Well, we just did a uh, podcast with somebody out of southwestern Iowa a week or two ago in which he was saying, oh, we got this conservation reserve program land coming back into production. And if you don't no-till it, you're nuts because you're going to lose everything that you had going for 10 years or so. Tell me a little about the, the disc drills that didn't work and what it led to uh, in your farm shop. Well, as I said, the the discs were wearing, and of course, you have a lot of bearings in those things, plus you had all the uh, packer wheels with it, and then when you're all done, you still weren't able to put the fertilizer because it didn't have any any ability to put anything more than the seed and a little bit of starter fertilizer. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we realized we need to do something else, and so we went to the what we call a knife-type opener system, and uh, after... Trying various options, we learned how we could separately place the seed, but keep it in 
the relationship to the fertilizer. So typically our fertilizers put three and a half, four inches deep in the ground from the original surface and the seed is about one and a half inches to the side and one to one and a half inches above mm-hmm. the uh, location of the fertilizer. And that opener, of course, the seed opener particularly, is controlled by a packer wheel. So that's uh, what we evolved into what was then became uh, known as the Conserva Pack. And you manufactured these and sold them for years? or Yes, we manufactured them ourselves for actual sale from about 1989 till 2007 when John Deere bought the technology, mm-hmm. which they then had in their uh, 1870s, okay. was their model name. And for 10 years, they used the ConservaPak name on it. And they still market that machine. It's their primary seeder in Western Canada, and they also export to Australia and so on. Mm-hmm. And we... We built for them for two years after we sold it to them. They wanted it on the market and uh, to get their initial experience at their dealers and people, and uh, then they moved it to Valley City, North Dakota. What kind of moisture do you get in your area? Well, if you looked at long-term, they'd talk about 16 or 17 inches of total moisture in a year, and that includes the snow that mm-hmm. we get, but snow has got to be a lesser thing in uh, late in the last few years and uh, we've actually experienced on our own location here three years where it's been pretty darn dry and overall western canada is in pretty good shape this year we seem to be in the 10 percent area that has another dry year mm-hmm. not only did uh, you come up with this knife system for zero till but it uh, you went to wide widths, and uh, it also reduced a lot of the tractor horsepower needs, didn't it? Yeah, we had only ever expanded it up to uh, 56 feet. We were looking at wider widths at the time John Deere bought it, but mm-hmm. they've now made it into a 76 foot as well. The horsepower requirements are, are not excessive by any means and uh, because it's a very narrow opener. And the shape of the opener has a lot to do with keeping the draft down. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that people learned very early on, and this was a consistent learning experience, that after two to three years with this system in the field, the draft dropped considerably because typically soils had had a what I would have to call a mechanically created hard pan at about the two to four inch depth. Right, Like all the tillage previously had taken place above that, whether it was a smearing effect from collivator shovels or disc machines, it uh, created that layer that started about two inches down, and we could tell it with shovels easily walking into a field and trying to shovel, you'd get down so far, and you'd have to wiggle and push through the next layer, and after you got below that, it went quite easily again. And, and so this knife-type system helped fracture that area and once you got into zero tillage of course you don't have as much trouble keeping it in a more mellow condition right well these soils change without having serious tillage done to them that's for sure so what's happening to your soil quality organic matter etc well we had learned after the first 20 years because we had various research done on our farm by the soils department at the university of saskatchewan and also Agriculture Canada, Mm -hmm. that we had seen quite significant improvements of the organic matter levels. We had dropped, if you looked at the original organic matters, were probably in the 4 to 5% range. 
sure. in the type of soils. We have a loam-type soil with about 50% sand in it and about 15% clay. So we were able to get that back to pretty well the 4 to 5% organic matter in about 18 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. And the university just did some more work last year, and they confirmed that as well. And we've actually got our organic matter now on some of the land that's 40 years is, is greater than the original and the original is measured off of some native land that we have that has never been broken. Mm-hmm. And they compare it to that. Wow. So it's been a real interesting change. And I think the other thing that's happened, that it's hard for university people with only one site to say this, but they have noted the fact that we've got a deeper topsoil layer than we had even in the native situation. And I think that's due to the fact that we are able to grow crops that will root deeper than the original native grasses did. Mm-hmm. Compaction a problem for you people up there or not? It it can be, but of course, uh, we only go over the land once with anything very heavy, which is cedar and air cart and so on once a year. Probably if I had a comment about that more than anything, is I think the high clearance sprayers have caused more issues in the last few years, and particularly <laughs> if it turns wet, uh-huh. than, than a lot of other equipment has done. And I realize that you're often spraying 100 or 120 feet wide, but boy, where they track, you can find it. And, and then, of course, the other thing is the combines, Yeah, you know, that, that cause a compaction. Well, we've found that uh, zero tillers down here, probably like you, that if they get a self-propelled sprayer, they're probably going to run it over a lot more acres than they actually farm a year. I mean, it's it's common for somebody with 3,000 acres to maybe spray 10,000 acres of herbicides, pesticides, insecticides, whatever. How about you? Oh, well, that's certainly the case here because, I mean, you have a, a preceding application in the spring, and then you have one in-crop at least, in some cases two, like with our canola crops, they tend to recommend two applications to control weeds. In the early stages, canola is not a very competitive crop. Once it finally gets growing, it's very competitive. But mm-hmm. So you could have two there, and then there's there's pretty much always now used a fungicide yeah. of some kind in-crop, in you know, at, at the proper stages for cereals and oil seeds, etc., and... Uh, any case, that that gets you up to three to four operations for sure. Yeah, I suppose with uh, GPS, at least you're running in the same sprayer tire tracks all the time. Well, you are to some extent, but with land like ours around the valley and so on, it's uh, <laughs> it's not always a perfect operation. It, yeah. It's not like wide open level land from corner to corner. Right. So. Let's talk about your big crop, wheat. When would you spray weeds and then when would you seed? Well, here we uh, we try to get going as early as, as we can in the spring, and, uh, and that's pretty typical for all farmers in Western Canada, I'd say now, that uh, we get snow disappearing, hopefully, and the ground thawing, so that sometime after the middle of April, you can start doing field work. Mm-hmm. Now, something that we do in addition, and, and a few farmers are doing this, is is because we have rolling land and you've had frozen ground, the uh, snow melt or initial rains may all end up in low spots mm-hmm. because of the uneven ground. And, and we actually, have for 10, 12 years, used a, a pump that we go out and put it in these low spots and pump it out. And it's got a gun on it so you can spread it and cover two or three acres 
Sure. Uh, you know, at one sitting, and uh, this makes our farming a whole lot easier because if we don't do that, we've got those low spots to either try to get through with equipment, and that's where sprayers will do a whole lot of damage. Right. Or else uh, just plain leave them and have to go around them, and, and you either go back and seed them or you leave them, and they just become a, a weed yeah. a growth area. <laughs> So you're you're doing preceding irrigation in a few spots on the farm. <laughs> in a few spots, for sure. Yeah. And uh, it's actually become a just a common practice. As soon as we can get around the fields, pussyfoot around the fields without getting stuck, because I mean the frost still coming out of the ground. And yeah. when we start pumping out of these sloughs, we know because it's got a couple wheels and a long arm. When you back in, it doesn't even sink to start with because it's still frozen ground in there. Yeah. And it works for us. We'll put it that way. Right. There you go. What would you uh, use typically as your uh, preceding uh, herbicide? Well, glyphosate is the primary one, but we would also potentially use something with it. We also uh, follow a practice that hasn't been widely used, but I can tell you it's widely used in Australia, which I'm pretty familiar with because we sold in Australia our equipment for, oh, I guess about 14, 15 years. Sure. And I was over there frequently, and, and that is, we do some swathing yet. As you've probably heard, a lot okay. of people have gone to printer straight combine and everything, but yeah. we tend to still swath, particularly canola, and we often swath barley just to try to get it to come in quicker and more uniform. Mm-hmm. And while we're doing that operation, we're actually spraying underneath the swather. Okay. And so we're getting a weed control in effect about, say, mid-August of the year and it's a very effective weed control uh, because you're catching a lot of particularly perennial type weeds that uh, are often putting in reserves for uh, the next year mm-hmm. like thistles quack grass uh, and several other weeds right so that uh, that in effect uh, constitutes uh, any fall spraying or after harvest spraying uh, and it's all under the crop it's not sprayed on top of the crop Sure. which is another spraying operation that a lot of people still are doing, but I think is going to go by the wayside pretty quickly. So you got a you, you got a herbicide tank mounted on your swather? No, we actually pull a, a tank sort of oh, okay. uh, behind. with a couple wheels on it and about 500 gallons, pull it behind the swather, and mm-hmm. and that, that all works fine. We just straddle the swath and, and uh, have the sprayer mounted right on the swather and yeah, like I said, it's a common operation in Australia yeah. in a lot of their areas, particularly, again, used with canola. Mm-hmm. And they use it because they're trying to get rid of their uh, resistant ryegrasses, right. which well, are a real problem right. over there. You're bringing back memories for me because I remember being down in 1973. This is how good my memory still is. In southern Indiana, and I was with a guy who was uh, – harvesting wheat and double cropping soybeans and he had mounted two tanks on his uh, combine and he was doing what you were doing he was spraying for weeds in the so he could plant soybeans while the straw was in the combine Hmm. that's interesting he did it for four or five years i don't know whether he was still doing it later on or not but yeah he um they they originally started in australia because i'd see these things at the shows using mm-hmm. it on combines, but I, I think the problem they probably ran into is there's just too much dust around yeah. them. Yeah. I don't know whether that's all the reason they quit, and, but they went to the using it when you're swathing, and of course that's a pretty clean operation, and uh, it, 
it's a very effective weed control. I just did a column in our No-Till Farmer, my editorial column with Stephen Powells, who's a weed scientist in Australia. And he was saying if they lost glyphosate, they don't know what they would do with no-tillage. What would happen uh, well, to you? Well, <laughs> I'm not so sure we would know what to do either. Uh-huh. Uh, certainly, there is no other alternatives, and especially at a low price, right. that glyphosate is. And, uh, yeah, it's it's just a real shame of what's going on in the court system right, right now right. Over, over this thing because... Uh, I mean, if if really and truly it was such a problem, how come the farmers like myself and others that have used it for 40-some years and uh, relied on it to the extent we have or don't have health problems? Right. Well, in reality, there's only one study out of hundreds that shows it's been a problem. Yeah. And, uh, and some of those studies, I've even seen some that came out of Canada originally, too, that have been refuted, too, mm-hmm. you know, about... Uh, but, you know, in terms of showing a problem, and uh, right. I know that we've got a scientist in Saskatoon who's certainly into retirement age, but who's worked around the world with different universities and stuff, and, and he maintains that he cannot see where there could be any problem yeah. to humans from it. But One of the things comes up here is some people say, well, if glyphosate got banned, I guess we'd go back to trying Paraquat. But now there's a bill in the U.S. Congress, the Environmental Protection Agency, getting more serious about herbicides. And one of the ones they point out we got a real problem with is Paraquat. So that's probably not going to work either. No, I don't think so. Like Canada, uh, I convinced a guy at the University of Saskatchewan, Dr. Richard Gray. And he's in the Ag Economics Department of the College of Agriculture. And him and some colleagues did this study on on the uh, uh, adoption of zero-till in Western Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's significant benefits to the country and to food production in the world. Like, there's over 12 million more acres in crop every year up here than there used to be. And we're growing as much crop as we used to. And it all relies to a large extent on glyphosate. Right. You know, it, and so, like, people don't seem to look at how many people would go hungry and, and what what we might have to do if we had to go back to tillage and, and reverse the benefits to the, to our land right. that we've certainly achieved. So you told me earlier you showed a benefit of maybe 100 bucks for every dollar it was spent? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like that's far significantly greater by the adoption of zero till right. and the fact of how we're farming now. And, and I mean, there's, there's all the fuel reduction they looked into and they looked into some of the value of carbon capture, but they didn't give even a great deal of the credit to carbon capture, mm-hmm. but it's just the increase in production and the um, better condition of the soils, Right. you know, in, in total that, that is getting it. And, and the fact of the matter is the reason part of that benefit is calculated so high is there had been very little government money ever spent to create the system. Right. It was primarily done by individuals and private companies that developed the equipment and so on. I mean, they did they did look into everything that was done by like Ag Canada and universities and so on, but there'd never been a lot of money spent to come right. up with the zero tillage system. Right. 
So after you plant spring wheat, you'll come back and make another herbicide pass? Yeah, you usually use something that will control broadleaf and grassy-type weeds, primarily wild oats. Mm-hmm. We, we are finding in some cases, like we had the instance this year with our barley crop, in crop, we chose not to spray for wild oats because we didn't need to as far as we were concerned. Sure. And I mean, you sometimes regret those later, but we, we don't regret it yet. Mm-hmm. But we saw a perfect example of what can happen if if you don't get the uh, fertilizer benefiting the crop rather than the the weeds, you know, uh, right. just by by a little accident in the crop for about a hundred yards, but it shows up. <laughs> there is wild oats there, but we've we found this before that by putting the fertilizer where the crop gets it, it becomes very competitive, mm-hmm. and I think it's even more of a benefit when you have the dry years like which we're experiencing because there is limited water and the wild oats have trouble fighting for it. We think we've seen in crops this year, I mean, there are other people's crops with other equipment where mid-row banding has had some problems this year. Uh, Crops don't look quite as healthy. What do you think is the reason? Well, you just don't get, with mid-row banding where you put most of the nitrogen in the middle and maybe your seeds are five to six inches away from that when they germinate, you particularly notice it on the lighter land, like over the hilltops and stuff, where the, the crop doesn't get to the fertilizer for a long mm-hmm. time. Right. That's all we can surmise out of it. I don't know whether anybody's ever done enough research to figure it out, but I've had uh, the observation from numerous farmers over the years. Yeah. What row width would you be seeding wheat in? 12 inch. Okay. And you, uh, you're putting all your fertilizer in at, on at planting time? Yep. Yeah. Okay. We do not want to be broadcasting anymore. Well, it was proven years and years ago how inefficient it was and uh, compared to banding it, period. But then banding it related to the actual crop you're trying to grow and just giving the crop, like we don't put any fertilizer right with the seed. We don't need to. We can put it all about an inch, inch and a half away. So we think we're getting the maximum efficiency out of it. And uh, like I said, we're getting even, we think this crop competition... We'll get back to Frank and Jim Halford in a moment, but I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin-Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to Frank's conversation with Jim Halford, here's Frank with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Well, with this interview with Jim Halford from Saskatchewan, we went north of the border, and I think today we'll stay outside the United States as we do a couple extras in here. The question is how South America rushed to no-tilling. This was back in 2006, and since 1987, no-till had exploded by 47% in South America, while in the United States it had only gone up by 6%. There are a number of reasons for no-till's quick adoption in South America. No-till provided efficient and economically viable erosion control where they really had some problems. 
There was widespread use of cover crops, which added weed suppression and built organic matter way back in the early decade of the 2000s. And the public and private sectors voiced the same consistent message about the benefits of no-till and the necessary knowledge for no-till adoption was made widely available and shared between researchers and farmers. And then farmers aggressively spread the positive word about no-till among themselves. So that's the reason that South America exploded much more than no-till did in the United States. Let's get back to the program now as Jim Halford talks about banding fertilizer in spring wheat. Well, down here in the States, we've got people who have been doing no-till corn in 30-inch rows and using cover crops. And now we've got some interest in people planting corn in 60-inch rows with cover crops in between. And it reminds me of years ago, there were some people in Canada that were going to try 20-inch rows with wheat. Remember anything about that? I don't remember as much here as actually in Australia. Okay. Because I actually spent a lot of time in Australia, so I became aware of the the early kind of uh, innovators in Australia, Mm -hmm. some of which I met, some of them I didn't, but I would follow up, you know, reading their literature. And sure. Some of them had gone to 24-inch rows in wheat in South Australia, seemed to do not bad with it. Right. And, and I know the experiences we've had here in Western Canada that we've had some by accident actually occur, right. where they've grown canola in 24-inch rows rather than 12-inch. Mm-hmm. And they have done just about equal in yeah. those sort of accidental experiments, you could call them. But right. uh it's quite interesting. Um, I mean, when we started out, we started with the nine-inch machines, and everybody then said that was too wide because typically it was six or seven-inch. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we started trying 12, and there was all kinds of comparisons in Canada, in North Dakota, particularly with nine and 12, and in Australia. All those people have gone to 12-inch. Right. And, of course, with the zero-till and the residue clearances, etc. Uh, it's a much easier to have a machine that'll get through the residue and leave it as undisturbed as possible. And this residue, when you're harvesting wheat, how how high do you like to leave the stubble? Uh, well, I'd say we end up cutting it more based on trying to get the majority of the crop rather than height of stubble. And and that okay. is, work has been done in Western Canada with that. But, but like, um, I would say we would average 8 to 10 uh, inches, we may get up to 12 if we've got a high crop and we don't mm-hmm. want to put all that through the combine. But the varieties we've got, and like this year, I would say I don't think the wheat's much over two feet tall because it's just been so dry. Yeah. And uh, and yet the heads look pretty good. You know, it's not going to be a bumper crop, but I also think that when you get these dry years is when you have less disease issues and you get a lot of benefit from that. Right. How wide a header do you have on your wheat combine? We use 35 foot, and that's and you, the same thing we use for swathing and so on. There is certainly 40 foots, and now they're talking up the 50s up here. But right. but um, we've got rolling type land that uh, 35 is plenty on at times. So I think we'll be sticking with that. And the other part of it is, so far the combines have barely been able to spread the straw right. over 35 feet, and uh, I know our last ones, we just changed up to newer combines to us, not brand new by any means, but uh, we think now we'll be at 35 feet, mm-hmm. and we have been at previously only about 30, and 
that makes a big difference because you can tell if the ground can stay covered how you get less evaporation right. off of the surface. And That's a problem down here. We'll have combines that aren't spreading the strong shaft the full width of the header. Yeah, and it's a you know it's always talked about as the first part of zero till. The first step is to get that spread, and we've always reasonably conscious of that and tried. I mean, you sometimes have to fight winds or you have to change directions to get it. But uh, with all of these uh, crops, we certainly like to get the spread right. and get the cover on the ground if we can. When you swath a crop, can you still get the full width of the header with the straw or residue? Yeah, yeah, because it's, like I said, we've only gone to a 35-foot swather mm-hmm. as okay. well, and uh, and the combines we're using, we we can get out there that 30 feet, and we're hopeful with these new ones that are newer to us that we'll be up around that 35 feet, so it's it's pretty good. And when you get a crop like canola, for instance, that we typically swath, uh, we've even straight-cut canola, which is a big big thing up here now but we did it years ago but because of the fact that we like to do this spraying operation we like to swath canola and we actually find that we can get it to come in quicker than the people leaving it standing mm-hmm. it's been the last two or three falls have been real challenges for people trying to straight cut canola because you you've got to be able to get it uniform and and of course it can mean if you don't swath it you've got to maybe go back through and spray once more to yeah. try to get it to dry down and right. so we eliminate that other trip through it as well. What would be normal yields for you on canola and barley and wheat? Well, in uh, wheat, like last year, we were at about 65 to 70, and we were quite pleased with that. I mean, that's mm-hmm. getting up to the upper end for this type of soil. And canola, we're sort of typically in 40 to 50 bushel range. Barley, well, last year, even with a bit of hail, we were up around 90. Wow. And uh, and uh, they've got some newer varieties of barley, and they they really seem to be yielding. And and fortunately, when you can get that at, out of a malting barley, you know, feed right. barley's of course will run higher. But but uh, if we can get that, we're quite pleased with it. So, are you selling uh, barley uh, locally to distilleries, or what? I was told last couple years when we've had barley off, and interestingly enough. It's been shipped within a week to two weeks of having been harvested. As soon as they, the people looked at it and said, yep, this meets malting quality, mm-hmm. they've been loading full trains up as much as 120 cars, and it's all going to Asia, all going to China, I think. Wow. wow. Uh, because there's been a big increase in the amount of uh, of interest in beer in China. Mm-hmm. I think if we want to make the Chinese have an unrest with uh, not happy with their government is is cut off their <laughs> beer consumption. There you go. There but, you go. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, they were. Uh, I know. I think it was a year ago they were loading one train load that went direct from here to West Coast Vancouver. It's about 120 cars, and there was another location. Same company had loading it from somewhere else. Wow! Wow! Yeah. So, how is your wheat marketed? Well, we, we in effect market it through the different elevator companies the same same way because it's, you know, um, the crops we produce up here, 90% of wheat or barley or, well, barley, of course, in feed barleys can go into feedlots and so on, mm-hmm. but pretty near all the wheat is going to be exported. Right. Because we just don't have a big population in Western Canada to consume much of it. 
so it can go east or west, usually goes and finds an offshore market. Right, right. I would think the people in the northern U.S. states is pretty much the same, and we were familiar a bit with Washington, Oregon, Idaho, because we sold cedars down in that that country, and, uh, you know, they were, most of their stuff was going to the coast. Fortunately, right. they're close to water and can float them down the rivers and right. so on. Yeah, they'd float it down the river into Portland. You're right, yeah. So I assume you're an inventor and a tinkerer. You must, you got any new projects going? <laughs> <laughs> oh, not really. Um, my sons have taken over the manufacturing business that I had, and uh, and they uh, they have some things going on. Um, they're actually coming up with, with adopting an Australian idea, which is, uh, I don't know whether you've ever seen these large field bins that are used in Australia. No, I don't think so. Typic- well, typically, the, what happens in West Australia and South Australia and a little bit in the other states is the farmers don't have much for grain storage. Right. And at harvest time, the grain goes right from the field to an, either an inland terminal or right to the coast. And uh, so to facilitate that, because they're usually using commercial truckers because the farmers don't own that many trucks, mm-hmm. they have a big bin at the edge of the field that their grain carts come around and fill. And then when the trucker ends up uh, coming to pick it up to take it to the coast or whatever, um, he's for sure going to have lots of grain to pick up. Mm-hmm. So these bin these bins like are up to like four to six thousand bushels. Wow! You know, it's, and it's a mobile thing. So you use it okay. in that field and get it unloaded, and then you move it to another field. And mm-hmm. So your your grain carts and your combines can work independent of the of the trucker. Right. You know, and right. the, so anyway, they they have a new product coming out this year. So it's, I, all I can say about it is I've encouraged it for about ten years. <laughs> Because I saw it over there, and I just thought this this makes a lot of sense, you know. So right. that because there's such a rush uh, at harvest time with uh, grain carts and trucks trying to meet and keep the combines 100% occupied, mm-hmm. you know. So this kind of uh, takes that bottleneck potentially. Yeah. What's the name of the manufacturing company? Uh, the company my sons have is Vale Industries. Okay. Limited. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Down here in the States, farming's kind of on hard times. Commodity prices aren't good. Wheat prices aren't good. Corn prices, soybeans. What's the outlook up in your area? Well, there has been a considerable amount of optimism, I would say, for about 15 years. Sure. And that's because we've we've really not had a serious overall Western Canada problem since... Uh, I always maintain the last real problem was 2004 mm-hmm. when we had uh, a serious frost the 20th of August, and that's too early to have frost up here because our crops aren't off. Right. And it, so it hurt pretty well everything pretty bad. But since then, we've had reasonably good crops. Some areas, of course, will have problems from year to year. but uh, And, you know, markets have been generally good. One One of the problems that compared to the U.S. is is our dollar has been a lot lower than yours, so therefore the price we get per bushel is quite a bit higher. And that's, okay. of course, what we pay our expenses and everything else with. And so there has been a lot of optimism, and it's the longest time period of optimism I've seen uh, since I became involved, you know, planting the first crop in about 1962 when I was still in university. So um, 
you know, it's it has pushed land prices up a lot. Mind you, low interest has helped push it up as well. And so generally, Western Canada is in reasonably good shape. I mean, some areas have struggled, especially last fall with very late harvest with rain and snow in the fall, and some didn't mm-hmm. even get their crops off till this spring. But that was, you know, just some areas. Generally, it, things are optimistic, and I'm sure they will be this year because generally everybody's had pretty good moisture. Yeah, well, that's great. That's what counts. And you're probably like we are down here. The zero tillers or no tillers may not be happy with the economic situation, but they know they're so much better off than the people that aren't that are still doing extensive tillage. Yeah, well, I don't know what your percentage of you would call doing zero tillage is down there, but and this this was part of the study I referred to that Richard Gray had done. Like we're up to in Western Canada, about seventy five percent or more is done with zero tillage and has been for probably ten, fifteen years now. Yeah. Like it, once it started to get adopted, and and it really didn't start to get adopted to any extent until the mid 1990s I'd say mm-hmm. there was a lot of lookers and so on but then it all of a sudden sort of became evident that those that had tried it and were doing it weren't actually going broke so uh, right. it wasn't so bad of an idea to to try to do it and that's, uh, that's probably about the same time it caught on here when we started no-till farmer in 1972 the first survey we did showed there were about 3.2 million acres of no-till and today there's about 110 million so it's yeah, been, it's been kind of happy to see this happy or happen, and maybe play the small part in making it happen. Yeah, well, I I, I said earlier to you, uh, I was wondered how long you had been involved because I know I'd followed a bit of your magazine and information over the years. So and, I see you just got inducted into the Canadian Hall of Fame. Congratulations! Well, thank you very much. Quite an honor. Uh, I I always say it's been an extremely interesting time period to have lived through and been involved in because the two things that I say about it that's been interesting is is the change in people. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I have had a lot of people, farmers that have adopted systems like ours that said that they were ready to quit farming because they were unhappy with what they were doing and didn't seem successful and fighting weeds, etc. Right. And then the other part that's been amazing to me, because and we never expected this, I don't think anybody did, or maybe would have got at it a lot sooner, is the huge change in the land quality. Right. Like I said, we've been able to show on our own farm, because we've had the measurements that we've got it back to as good, if not better, than it was when it was probably broken, the fields originally, and around the turn of the century, a year or previous century, like. Mm-hmm. Those two things have been pretty interesting. Then I was able to see it duplicate in Australia as well, and a little bit of experience in the U.S. For uh, neighboring farmers in your area, if they were selling land, would zero-till land be priced higher than tilled land? I think it would have a bit of a premium, but the thing is here now, like in an area like ours, everybody's like doing everything it. is... Everybody's doing it. I mean, there is the odd exception, and people say, well, look at those people. They haven't followed and done it and so on. A lot of them, I just say, well, look, a lot of them have small acreages, and they probably can't afford to switch, Right. you know, because there is a fair bit of equipment you've got to get, and most of the equipment isn't available in 20-foot sizes or things like that. Right. And so even early on in the 
in the early 90s, I mean, I told people, because my background is economics, I took ag economics at the university and and then did farm management work in that area. So I used to simply say back in then was you probably needed to have 1,500 acres that you were using your equipment on, whether it was yours or you were doing custom work or something, just right. to justify, you know, the expense because it was still expensive. Right. You know, and to get into. So uh, that's probably held up a few people. And, and I say they're just caretaking their land in the best way they know and with what they've got. Right. And it, it'll it'll probably change as soon as somebody else takes it over. Right. So you mentioned uh, carbon sequestration earlier. What tell me about what's going on in Canada and what you might be doing? Well, we're not doing anything in terms of selling it ourselves mm-hmm. yet. Uh, there has been a little bit of that done uh some in Alberta particularly and there was a little bit of an attempt in Saskatchewan. We fortunately managed to get Internationally, people convinced that uh, zero tillage could do as much, and if not more, in some countries than just simply growing trees and leaving trees growing. Right. Uh, because they have the measurements to show, you know, what what can be stored. But in terms of actual companies paying individuals or paying through organizations to for the uh, storage to offset some pollution they might be doing. There isn't a great deal of it being done yet. Mm -hmm. And uh, I suspect it will come, especially if, if there gets to be more and more pressure to do it. Right. Uh, We still have problems that some cases we listen to some of the politicians talk. They think the solution to all environmental things is just go back to small ways of farming. Exactly. Right. You know, and and that's it's really irrational because uh, I mean, if you go back to small ways of farming, you'd have to go back to what we used to do that I guess worked for people at that stage, but it, but it certainly doesn't produce the food that is being produced now, and uh, and we're doing it fairly efficiently. We're certainly using less fuel than we used to use, right? And, and which is a major pollution factor. If we could just find some fertilizer that we could produce without uh, having to have a lot of carbon lost due to the production of fertilizer, right. we'd uh, we'd have a better system, I guess, but uh, I don't know how that will come about. Maybe it will someday. Well, the big thing down here right now is planting cover crops and getting nutrients off the cover crops, but cover crops probably don't fit very well in your area. No, the, uh, for a long time, another fellow that... Uh, you may have heard of him over the years, Dr. Guy Lafond, who was sure. right at the station here at Indian Head, and myself were pretty good friends for a lot of years, and he unfortunately passed away in 2013 very suddenly. Anyway, we used to talk about it and wonder how we could adopt cover crops. Mm-hmm. And the trouble is here, like I said, if you look at, we can't plant the first crops until towards the end of April, and most stuff takes 90 or 100 days yet, and so we're into... The end of August or into early September, well, our, originally the first killing frost on average was the 9th of September in this area. <laughs> so you don't have much time to right. get a second crop in. I mean, people are trying to plant in a standing crop in some way or another, and there may be some ways. Uh, I would very much like to be able to do it. Right. The best thing we've been able to do is is put some land in forages every year, 
not every year, but every now and then, and have four or five years of forage, and then uh, take it out and go straight into annual right. crops again. And we've seen a definite benefit right. from it. There's no no question. You see the line, and we have a limited market as well for forages because, mm-hmm. of course, there is livestock, but the uh, most livestock producers look after their own forage right. needs, and we certainly don't have a big dairy industry because Saskatchewan's only got 1.1 million people, and you know the whole prairies doesn't have a big population. Right. You've done great on this. Have we missed anything you'd like to talk about? Don't think there's too much uh, more. The system no doubt works. If I was to say one thing the last three years have taught me, I'm, I'm just amazed after three years it has been very dry how good a crop's we're able to grow under yeah. conditions like this because right. I just don't know what could have would have happened years ago right. with situations like this. But uh, yeah, you, it's a system that still works. Right. Okay. Hey, this has been great. This is the first time in this series we've gone north of the border, so I really appreciate you doing this with me. Okay. All Thank right. Thank you very much. Take care. Okay. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. Now we'll head south and we'll go to Australia, where Jim Helford had had a number of uh, visits with uh, people down there and his uh, His no-till or zero-till planting machines were uh, widely used in some parts of Australia, particularly in the West. So someone asked how big rigs we've seen in no-till, and probably the biggest in the world have been in Australia. There's a farmer down there named Gavin Zell, and he and his uh, sons grow 47,000 acres of wheat, barley, and chickpeas in New South Wales. And he is pulling a 212-foot frame with a zero-till planter. It's pulled by two tractors, and uh, he's, he's made it work on that huge acreage. For road transport, the cedar is towed in-wise with a width of only 18 feet. It takes about an hour to switch the cedar into transport mode. It's, it's 212 feet wide, and they can seed about uh, two and a half acres per minute at 5.6 miles per hour. And in a typical 18-hour daily seeding period, the big rig can seed 2,500 acres. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Jim Halford for today's discussion. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lester and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.